Thank you so much, Ben and worship team. And again, really good to see all of you all. And for those listening online later, thank you for listening online later. If you're listening, you're going to miss this picture I'm about to show the people in front of me right now. Uh, this past summer, we had the chance to go as a church to the Dominican Republic. And many of you went with us. And on a particular Sunday, the first Sunday that we were there, uh, after church was over, and it was all in Spanish primarily, and we understood uh, un poquito of it. Uh, isn't that pretty good? Yeah. Uh, but it was a great, a great blessing to be there. And uh, we, we learned so much. But on the, at the back end of that, we went to a beach, and we had a little bit of time to walk around that beach. And here's a picture of our team, part of our team, at least walking around that beach. And uh, the Lears, uh, who are our missionaries in the DR, they were there. Uh, and their one child, I think it is... Um, Harris, who was down on the beach at this point, she was walking our team around to go pick up what they called sea glass. Many of you know what that is. Sea glass is simply uh, glass uh, that has uh, been uh, washed up from out deep into the water, perhaps from a shipwreck or uh, whatever, a party might have gone on on a boat where a glass bottle might have broken and fallen into the sea. And if you know anything about sea glass, you know that its uh, edges have been uh, really... Uh, worn off over the years and its shine is gone. It no longer looks glassy, it kind of looks frosty. And even though the glass bottle is broken, it can't cut you by and large because the, the edges have really been softened over time. Some people think it takes about 30 to 40 years, believe it or not, for sea glass to really kind of form into the form that it's safe for us to, to hold like that because the constant tidal movements with the glass landing on the bottom of the ocean with that sand going over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, wears down the edges of the sea glass. It's a beautiful thing to find and a beautiful thing to have and to hold. And I think you know that if you've lived long enough, you know that this is the way life works for many of us, that our hard edges can be worn down over time, that the sharpness in which we kind of bring sometimes the energy of our use, sometimes over time, kind of gets worn down with the rhythms of life was visiting with Chuck and Claudia in the hospital this week as she was recovering from what was a successful uh, surgery to remove these two masses. And a, uh, a young nurse walks in uh, right in the middle of our, my visit with them and says, hey, I was told to come take you for a walk. Okay, probably not the most urgent thing to do. And then she realized that they had a visitor, which is me. And then she looked at me and just stared at me for about two seconds as if I was in the way. I'm like, Sorry, I do have my badge on. It says, you know, clergy over here, which is kind of neat. And uh, she said, do you want me to come back later? I don't care if you can. I mean, I'm not the patient. And then she's like, you want me? Okay, we'll come back later. And it was just awkward. It was an awkward exchange. The heart was good behind it, but here's what I'll tell you. And give her a couple years, and she'll sense that moment better. The heart was good, but in a couple years of the rhythm of her work, she'll walk in and realize immediately there's somebody here. I'm supposed to take you for a walk. Uh, can I come back in a little bit? Is that okay? We're good to go. This happens to all of us. Over time, the rhythms of life soften up our edges, and we hopefully get better. Now, here's what I also know about things that happen over time. Over time, there can be deeper parts of us that are changed just because of the rhythms of life. In fact, what I want to speak to this morning is something that happens over time that maybe isn't so great, but does happen to all of us. And that is, I want to make this statement and unpack it for you because I believe we see it in the book of Nehemiah in which we are in this morning. And I want to say this, that over time, discouragement and criticism can wear down convictions. That over time, for all of us, 
we have convictions that are formed in us at an early age, and there's a conviction to believe something about who I am or who God is, and over time, discouragement and criticism can wear down the edges of that conviction. Over time, we can lose the fire, and over time, we can lose the edge. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. That over time, and you've seen this happen because um, you know people like this. In fact, Jen and I have the great privilege of interacting with many of you and some of your children in premarital counseling as people get ready to get married. And every single person who's gone through premarital counseling, when we talk about, would you like to have a marriage that survives or a marriage that thrives? Of course, well, what's the right answer in premarital counseling, right? What, what are you going to say? We're going to kick you out if you get that one wrong, okay? And so everyone desires when they're getting married to have a marriage that's awesome for a lifetime because they know people whose marriages are not awesome, who just happen to be living together but do not share that fire anymore, that love or passion for each other. Why? Over time, discouragement and criticism can wear down the edges of conviction, can wear down the edges of belief that as a husband I am really here for you, to serve you and to give you everything that I have. And as a wife, I'm here to encourage and to serve and to honor you with everything that I have. I'm going to try to outdo you with honor as a spouse, that edge of conviction. This is what God has led me to do. Over time, discouragement and criticism, even from within, can wear down the edges of conviction. So this morning, I want to speak to us about this issue that we don't always verbalize this way, but we know is true and happens, particularly related to our faith and our conviction that God is sovereign that God is in control and that I am not. And so I want to speak to our hearts on this and, and essentially come back to, to ask you, toward the end of this, I want to encourage you to think about, are there any ways in which in your own faith you have gotten tired, you've gotten worn down, you've started to be discouraged and believe that maybe, maybe, the things that you used to believe about who God is and what he might have you to do, maybe that was just youthful naivety. Maybe that was just a pipe dream. Maybe that is no longer for me because discouragement and criticism have worn down those convictions. So with that being said, here's what I think the antidote is. It's really simple. I think the antidote is this, that revisiting convictions can restore courage and put critics in their place. That revisiting convictions can do that. It can restore, restore that peace to you. So I want to look with you in the book of Nehemiah. And we're in this series that we're calling Remember When... Remember when is simply uh, my way of, of trying to verbalize what I think is happening underneath the book of Nehemiah. That as Nehemiah comes to lead the nation of Israel back to honor and glory, he's calling them back to remember who God was. And there becomes a moment where they can say, I remember when this happened. I remember when Nehemiah helped us rebuild the walls. I remember when, it's kind of like planting a flag in the ground saying, I remember when God was faithful as before. I remember that. And that point of memory serves as a motivating factor to re-up our faith, to re-up our commitment to our submission to God and our, our glad submission to his sovereignty over us. So I wanna, we're in this book, and this is why we're calling it Remember When, because these moments can happen. So uh, we are in the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just grab one in the pew around you or look it up in your phone app. Find the book of Psalms kind of in the middle of your Bible and back it up a couple chapters, a couple books, and you'll find a little book of Nehemiah. And where we are in this story is that our friend Nehemiah, who was a powerful uh, man in the Persian Empire, uh, Jewish man, but in the Persian Empire, uh, he was the cupbearer to the king, 
and he found out that Jerusalem was uh, in ruins and the nation of Israel was dispersed around the modern, around the area at the time. They were uh, now able to come back to Jerusalem. And so in that return to Jerusalem, that desire to come back, uh, the walls of Jerusalem were burnt, were knocked down, the gates were burned with fire, and the uh, nation of Israel had lost its identity. And so Nehemiah hears that story. He's broken down, you know, he's gutted by that news. And then he, um, he goes to the king and asks for help, asks for time off. It takes about 12 years. He asks for time off. He makes a plan to go back. And now where we're at in the story is that Nehemiah is making his way back to Jerusalem, having just received the blessing of the king to come to Jerusalem. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, uh, verse 11, to see what happens when he gets there. All right? Chapter 2, verse 11 of Nehemiah. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. Okay, now, let's look at those verses. So he goes to Jerusalem, verse 11, and after a few days, three days, he's there. We're not sure what's happening, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He shows up, and for three days, we assume... He's just collecting intel. He's finding out who is who, who are the real power players here, who really influences things, and who are the people who will know the city, who will know how to guide me on my next step. Because he sets out during the night, verse 12, with a few men. And he says, I hadn't told anyone what, and then look at this phrase, because this is what I believe is the point of conviction. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I want you to almost picture something as if God was taking this little box of conviction and bringing it over and dropping it into Nehemiah's heart and putting it there and saying, Nehemiah, this is what you are to do. And there's this burden from Nehemiah to do this. Like, I'm giving you this thing, and God put it on my heart to do it. I hadn't told anybody yet what was going on. I'm just gathering intel to find out what's going on. We're going to come back to that statement toward the end of this message. But here's what he does, verse 13. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Great name for the gate there. I'm not sure who decided to name that there, but anyhow. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, and so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. And finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So picture what's happening with Nehemiah. He goes out late at night. It's dark-ish enough. He has his iPhone with him, right? So he has a flashlight that he can use, so don't worry about that. He can see. And he's walking around. Uh, and he has one mount. So there's one mount. We assume a donkey with him. We don't know. But there's not several mounts. He doesn't want to draw attention to this big group. He has people with him just showing him. And Nehemiah, here's where it is. Like, we've been living here for years. Yeah, we can show you that gate and this gate and the best way to get here and get there. And he takes a little while to go there. And so he's walking around, kind of walking around at night on one mount. And these people are showing him what is up. And now the officials didn't know what was going on. That, that's amazing, actually, that they didn't know where he was or what he was doing. And then look at all the people that he identifies. As yet, at the end of verse 16, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or anyone else who would be doing the work. You know why that's amazing? Because any one of them 
could have done what Nehemiah is doing. And none of them did. But their officials were crying out loud. Like they're in charge for crying out loud. Anyone could have done this. And when anyone can do it, then often no one does it, right? Oh, someone else can do that. Oh, they can do that. Well, they're the priests. They should do that. Well, he's an official. He should do that. Well, he's a noble. They should do that. And the responsibility gets shifted from one to the next to the next. Meanwhile, somebody named Nehemiah finally just says, you know, this is dumb. I'm going to do this. But all these people are identified. And what in the world was keeping any of them for years for picking this up and doing this? Except their own fear and the criticism that they were facing from people around them. So, Nehemiah gathers this intel, and we don't know how long transpires between verses 16 and 17. Sometime, it could just be a day. I assume, I assume it's just a day. I assume it's the next day. I don't know. But what Nehemiah does next is after he gathers the intel, that's a very important part of his plan, he needs to lay his eyes on the plan. Um, by the way, I've learned some things about plans. Um, I mentioned this renovations thing we're talking about here at the church. Um, our team has met several times, and I learned the uh, architectural language, DIF. So you know what that is, verify in field. In other words, we don't actually know, but please verify in field. When you go to the job site, please verify that what we think in the office is actually happening on the job site, like verify in field. So he needs to verify in field that the gates are actually the way that they are and that everyone is the way it is. He has to lay his eyes on it. That's what he does. And so then verse 17, here's the context. He decides to gather everyone together. This is amazing. Verse 17. Then I said to them, the them being all the people that he just mentioned in verse 16. So there's this gathering of people, maybe the next day, maybe days later, I don't know. But he gathers all the people together, and he says, and this, what he says next is a blueprint for any of us who ever want to communicate vision for our organizations or for our families. It's a blueprint for how to do this. And he said, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Simple statement there, and amazing. He, uh, look what Nehemiah does. He begins with the obvious, and he says, you see the trouble that we are in. He's empathizing with the people. He's like, we are in this trouble. I just arrived here a couple of days ago, but listen, I'm with you. I'm one of you. All of us have known leaders who have been like, hey, everybody, let's get together. Staff meeting time. This is what you all need to do. And there's this distance between the leader and the people. And with Nehemiah, he immediately reduces that distance and says, listen, hey, everybody, we are in trouble. And immediately, if you're someone there, you feel this empathy like this guy knows, like he's empathizing with me, he's sensing that, and he's willing to be on my team, like he's tracking with me. So we're in trouble. He just shares the facts. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. It's a tremendous way to start. If you want to communicate vision to anyone, you have to start with where they are. In fact, you may have heard me say uh, many a time, you have to get the facts or the facts will get you, right? You have to get the facts or the facts will get you. What are the facts? And here's the facts. Everybody, listen. Jerusalem is torn down. Like, we know that and we are in trouble. So let me just start there. And he just lays out, here is what is happening. And then the next thing he does is he gives a clear call to action. Check that out. He says, okay, come. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Like, this is what I want you to do in light of the facts. This is, this is our current situation. We're in trouble. And here's what I want you to do. Clear call to action. Come, let's rebuild the walls. It's really simple. And then he gives the third step, which is kind of a picture of the future. He says, here's what will happen when this succeeds. And then we will, future tense, we will no longer be in disgrace. Here's why you want to do this. We're in trouble. Here's what we can do. And here's why this will be awesome. 
we will no longer be in disgrace when we rebuild these walls. And I'm in this with you. It is a tremendous model for how to think through moving people or even moving yourself from where you are to where you want to be. This is the facts. Even as ugly as it needs to be, we need to stare them down. But here's what we need to do in light of that. And listen, here's the future. Here's what can be. And then, because I assume that Nehemiah knows this reality, that all these people, we have, we have to understand this, all these people for years and years and years had settled in to being okay, to living in this city. They're used to this. The walls are torn down. Yeah, I know that. They were torn down yesterday and they'll be torn down tomorrow. For years, this is all that they have known. And this has become their identity. This has become their national identity. And I can imagine, I've never been there, of course, but I can imagine that Nehemiah is looking over the crowd and he kind of sees like maybe a glimmer of hope in their eyes that maybe I'm willing to try to rebuild. But Nehemiah, no one has been able to rebuild at this point. Why will you be able to help us do this? And so he gives one more reason why, at the beginning of verse 18, he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. So I also added, just as they were still trying in their mind and in their heart to try to figure out, are we in or are we not in? I also said, listen, God is in, and the king is in. And so if not now, when? We've gotten the gracious hand of God to move the heart of the king, to give me these letters, to give us the timber. I've got a plan. I've verified in field. Let's start rebuilding. And because we know the story, if you don't know the story, there's a happy ending. Now you know the story. Because you know the story that, yes, the wall gets rebuilt, the, the impact of the next phrase in this verse can miss us sometimes. But look what happens next in verse 18. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And then they began this good work. If you have ever, if you have ever, been discouraged, if you have ever faced criticism, if you have ever given up a habit that you wish you wouldn't have given up, if you have ever been in a situation where you have found it extremely difficult to pick up something again that you know that you should be doing, if you have ever fought with your own demons inside to say, no, I will never be able to start that plan again or do this again, I've tried that and failed, if you have ever given in to those feelings of sensing discouragement and criticism from people, then you will understand that this is not just an individual issue for these Israelites, this is a national conscience issue. This is their identity. We live in a broken down city for years and years and years and years and years. Officials, nobles, priests have not been able to move us out of this. And in this moment, here comes Nehemiah, and they say, we will try again. That big moment. And it is possible. As soon as they say that, and as soon as they begin the good work, and they get that discouragement dealt with, criticism comes. As soon as they say, we're going to do it, and they begin the good work, you know what we believe happens? Some spies, some traitors in the midst, in their city, go and tell people around them that this is happening. 
Look at verse 19. But when Sinbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And there's history here. These people are the rulers in the regions right nearby. And they're basically saying to the nation of Israel, without putting it in these words, you've tried this before, and now we can look back to the book of Ezra and see that the king has already put a stop to this effort before. Are you rebelling against the king? Like You've tried this before, don't forget. Let me put that fear back in you. Do you remember who the Persian king is? Are you rebelling against him? Now, how would they know that this is happening unless there are spies in the midst to go out? And so internally, Israel is even divided, and then the rulers come in from outside and begin to criticize and begin to threaten and begin to put fear in the hearts of the Israelites. You are going against the king's order. It's not actually true anymore because Nehemiah has a new order. But they don't care. They want to mix and confuse the issue. And this is what critics do, by the way. Critics will mix and confuse the issue, even the critic of yourself against yourself. Because even when we are most critical of ourselves, we take the quote-unquote facts and twist them and turn them and see sometimes only the negative that we want to see. And critics will take the quote-unquote facts and twist them the way they want to to get what they want to. It's a cowardly way of manipulating people for their own benefit. And Nehemiah stands up to it, and this is why I say that conviction, conviction not only inspires people like the Israelites to pick up from where they were discouraged, but conviction also quiets the critic. The conviction of heart of Nehemiah, he's like, wait a minute, God put this box of conviction in my heart. Who are you, Sanballat? I can't even pronounce your name, all right? And what are you trying to say? And here's what he says, and here's his response in verse 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Look where he starts. He didn't even start with the king. He goes higher than that. He said, you just want to talk about the king? You talk about the king if you want to. Let me go above him. And he uses a phrase, the God of heaven, that was well known in the Persian world at the time, meaning the one who's created this all, the one with ultimate authority, Sanballat, by the way, he will give us success. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this phrase because at this moment, remember this, at this moment, God hasn't given them success yet. The wall is still currently broken down. He's staring at a city that is destroyed, and he is talking about what he believes that the God of heaven will do, incredible conviction of heart in this moment, to stand up to the critic and say, no, listen, God of heaven will give us success. And then he goes on. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. In other words, he's like Sam Ballot. Uh, you can't tell us what to do. Like You have no authority here. This isn't your place. It would be similar to us um, going over to our neighbor's house if you live in a place where you have a neighbor right nearby and you go over and knock on their door and ring the doorbell, whatever, and they come out and you say, listen, I don't like the flowers that you planted in your yard. What, what right do we have to make a claim on the, the flowers of our neighbor? We have, we have no right. It's not even our property. We don't have a right to do that. And this is what Nehemiah is saying, like, Sam Ballot, this isn't even your place, buddy. Like, you don't, have, you don't have a claim here. And he clarifies for the people and for the critic, I'm not even going to listen to this voice. There's no legal claim to this. You can't speak to this issue. 
I don't care if you like my flowers or not. They're the flowers that I planted in my yard. Now you go back and plant whatever flowers you want in your own yard. Like Sam Bell, if you don't want us to rebuild, then whatever. Go to, go, like you don't have a right to that. And so he clarifies with a conviction of his heart quickly. He's like, no. Sam Ballard, the God of heaven will give us success. And by the way, you have no right to speak to my people, in which the people hear that and realize there's safety, there's confidence that we can have in moving forward. And where does that come from? That comes from verse 12 of chapter 2. What God had put in his heart to do. The conviction of heart and mind and soul that God wants me to do this. And this is why I said at the beginning that over time, you've seen it over time, discouragement and criticism can wear down the edges of conviction. And people like the Israelites can get used to living in a broken down city with broken down walls, with watered down vision, with a discouraged heart, believing that somewhere along the line God has left them, that things will never be better, and this is all that they have. Nehemiah comes in with a conviction in his heart. No, we're not done here as a people. God has put this on my heart. And when that conviction is clear, it energizes people and it quiets the critics. And so I want to ask a couple of questions in light of this. Number one, I want to ask this. What has God put on your heart? What has God put on your heart? What, what conviction has God dropped into to your heart about who you are, what you do, how you respond to him? What did you used to think was true about God? That over time, because you've been discouraged or because you've been criticized, you stop believing as much. Where is it in your past that God has said, this is who I am, this is who I want you to be? And somewhere along the line, because life hasn't worked out the way you hoped it would, because your marriage hasn't worked out the way you hoped it would, because your career isn't panning out the way you hoped it would, because church life hasn't been all that you hoped it would be, because your personal commitments to God have not quite been the way that you hoped them to be, you've been discouraged. The walls have been broken down. You've lost that edge. And to add on to that, you've been criticized. Your family has criticized you. Your boss has criticized you. Your spouse has criticized you. Your kids have criticized you. You have criticized you. Your organization has criticized you. And you've heard those voices. And you believe them. And somewhere along the line, that double work of discouragement from within and criticism from without wears down the edge of conviction. And we're left to believe we live in a city with broken down walls. Yeah, there's a God out there somewhere but I don't know that he's here. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to do anything more than what I am right now. Now, I'll ask a couple questions to nuance this a little bit more. Number one, where am I discouraged? Where I used to be energized? Where are you discouraged? Where you used to be energized? When you think about your faith in God. Start with that. Where that used to energize you, give you passion and hope for the week. Now it's an afterthought because of all the responsibilities that you have. 
when you used to be excited about planning a, a date night with your spouse, and now it's an afterthought because of whatever. When you used to be excited about how you could build your business to benefit the community around you and hire people so that their, their work can be meaningful and produce a meaningful income, not just for you, but for other people around you. And somewhere along the line, you've lost that vision of what your business can do and how it can really contribute to the benefit of our culture and our community. Where is it that the things that used to energize you were things from God? Kind of, what are those things? Second question is this. Where do I find myself rehearsing the voice of the critic? Where do I find myself rehearsing the voice of the critic? Here's the telltale sign for me, if I can open up my heart to you a little bit more here this morning. Uh, I find that I am out of balance and out of line when I begin to tell the stories of the critic more than once. When I tell my friends, hey, this is what happened, or this is what this person said, and then a week later I find myself telling that same story to somebody else. And then maybe a week or a month later I tell the same story to somebody else. I'm not always thinking about that intentionally, but here's what's happening. I'm giving that voice way too much room in my heart and mind, and it's impacting my identity and even the way that I lead and serve. But by the way, I think you've heard me share before about the law of the whale in leadership. Right? Some of you have heard that. Um, Gary McIntosh uh, wrote about that, and he said, the law of the whale in leadership is this. When you rise to the surface and blow, you will be harpooned. That's the law of the whale in leadership. And so whatever way you want to lead, whether that's lead in your marriage, lead in your school, lead on your team, lead in the choir, lead in your musical, lead in your business, lead with your friends, whatever way that you ever want to lead, just know that as soon as you rise to the surface and blow, you make yourself a target for criticism. That's what's happened to Nehemiah. And that's what has likely happened to you along the way. People have not appreciated the way that you've done what you do. And they've let you know about it. And along the way, I ask myself, how many times am I rehearsing the voice of a critic in my mind? Because if I'm not careful and if we are not careful, criticism and discouragement will wear down the edges of conviction and I will no longer be able to inspire and encourage others and lead with clarity of conviction. Here's, here's what I want for you, and then I'm going to wrap it up, and we're going to share in communion together this morning. Here's what I want. I, I want for us, at the end of the day, to be able to kind of ask this question and have an answer for it. And it's this question here. Do I remember when my convictions could inspire others Quiet the critic. Do I remember when? Do I remember when my convictions could inspire others? Quiet the critic. Because it's exactly what happens with Nehemiah. The conviction, the thing that God put on his heart, is so real to him that an entire nation that used to believe for years and years and years, we got nothing, we are just middling around. All of a sudden, a whole nation says, Let's start rebuilding. And the critics are quieted because what God has put on his heart, he's going to do. If you're anything like me, over time, discouragement, criticism, wears that down. And I just want for you and I want for me to be able to revisit conviction this morning and ask, God, what do you want 
from my heart. As C.T. Studd has said before, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. One of the convictions that we have here at the church that I have is that Jesus Christ was real, came and walked the planet. And because of that, that changes everything about how I see myself and I hope how you see yourself too. And so when we share in communion, like we'll do in a minute, it's one of the deep convictions of our church that this moment happened and the gospel message that Jesus came to die on the cross is real. And the implications of that are tremendous. That we are people of forgiveness, grace, new stories, recreation, imagination. All of these things are gifts of God that come through the gospel, come through the cross. And so I want to encourage you, if you are discouraged, okay, if you've been criticized, and if you are living and breathing, both of those things have happened to you. I want to encourage you, do not let the discouragement of life and the criticism of people wear down the edges of a conviction, especially that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we have the opportunity, if you believe in him, to live that out with your family, with your peers, in your business, in every area your life. And that conviction will inspire people around you to quiet. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come around this scripture this morning and see how in the work of Nehemiah and rebuilding this wall that this conviction that you've put in his heart moved a nation quieted the critics around him. Thank you for the courage of men like Nehemiah whom we can learn from years and years and years and years. And I pray that this would be our story this morning, that there'd be something in us if we're tired, if we're fatigued, if we think we can't get back up again, if we think hoping again is too much, that you'd give us that courage to see what can happen again and bring us back to the cross where we come now. And that we can see in the cross this model Forgiveness, grace, restoration, renewal, rebirth, the regular rhythm of the gospel message. But there is always hope again, and life comes from death. Restore in us, I would pray, these convictions of heart with our faith. That we can be men and women, young men and young women, We can forge a path through life in which others are inspired and encouraged. The critics are quieted and your kingdom is made known throughout all generations. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have now to come together and share in this time of communion. It's in Jesus' name.